Hello. Thanks for listening to Better Worlds, the Verge's science fiction project about hope. Today's short story is called Monsters Come Howling in Their Season and is written by Cadwell Turnbull. This story follows an island community that integrates an AI to defend itself against a worsening hurricane season. And now, on to the story. This is Monsters Come Howling in Their Season. In the morning after the storm, Dr. Nancy Stevens sends a drone into the air. This is the worst part. She shows me the carnage in the viewfinder. Could you believe it? The hillside of St. Thomas is naked. All the trees have been stripped of their leaves, revealing the upturned soil beneath. Tucked between the trees are bits of debris and trash, some from storms past, and in a small clearing, an old church is completely gutted its front side torn clean off. The sea off of waterfront is still angry, all white froth and brown with runoff. Hurricane Owen has left the remains of his work everywhere, exploiting every weak spot with his fury. He has rolled boulders onto roads, stripped trees bare, strewn debris across hillsides, torn old telephone poles from the ground, tossed ornamental palm trees into the sea, and demolished a few uninhabited old buildings, their carcasses stinking and wet under a gray sky. The drone passes over a flooded street near Windward Passage Hotel, not too far from the Charlotte Amelie Harbor. Already people are outside along the flooded street, walking around, assessing the damage. Stephen's phone rings and she answers. Talk fast. People are clearing debris along Theodore Boschel Drive. Could use some hands. On the way. I can't help but notice how casual Stephen's tone is, like she is talking to another person. But I understand the intimacy. Common is a precious resource here, a significant component of their commonwealth, a lifesaver. The strong AI doesn't respond again, just hangs up. I hand Dr. Stevens the viewfinder, and she calls the drone down. The night of Owen, we wait out the storm at the Solberg Community Center. During Category 5 storms like this one, some of the island's houses and better-funded community centers will use a battery bank to keep their power uninterrupted. Solberg Center has coolers to keep our drinks cold and a portable stove to heat our packaged meals, but that's about it. My companions, Dr. Nancy Stevens, and her father, Joseph Tallman Stevens, are both completely at home in hurricanes, accustomed to riding them out by lantern light. It is different to live with hurricanes as they have, to know them by name in casual conversation. Hurricanes are so common here, they can mark time with them. Soon, Owen will be another marker, time partitioned into before Owen and after. I've covered six hurricanes, and I'm still incapable of such calm. My unease must be palpable because Tall Man, as he insists on being called, suggests we start a game of dominoes to pass the time. 
He spills the dominoes out on the table and shuffles, and then we pull our hand from the mess of tiles. As we play, we talk. My companions, in typical Islander fashion, slam their dominoes on the table. Dr. Stevens tells funny stories and we all laugh. Her laugh is pitched high and melodic, like a singing bird, like her father's. I imagine this laugh has been passed down through the Stevens family like a precious heirloom. Sometime during our game, I talk about my only marker, Hurricane Irma. It devastated the island back in 2017, crippling St. Thomas and St. John for several months. Many mark that hurricane season as the first sign of things to come, but I mark it as the one that changed my life. Before Irma, I was a quiet, relatively happy child. After Irma, a lot of things changed. I don't tell my companions about the depression. I tell them when my father lost his job, we sold our house and moved to Raleigh, both an evasion and the truth. That used to happen a lot after the storms. And then people from all over would come and buy a property on the cheap. We sold our home to a local family. I put down a Domino's tile from my hand without thinking. You let Nancy rattle you? <laughs> you in trouble now. The light shines on one half of his face, revealing a mock sinister grin. With my unknowing help, Tall Man and Stevens have placed a four on both sides of the snaking tiles of Domino's. I don't have any fours to play. I haven't played Domino since I was a kid so it is abundantly clear I have no idea what I'm doing. I pass. I put up my hands in defeat. Outside, the shutters on the windows rattle as Owen blares steadily, the ghost train hurtling down the track. Some unknown debris slams against the side of the house and drags. Steven slams down a double four. It took us a long time to get our land back. I lose that game, and several after. But the conversation is good, so I stay awake. We talk about those old Wild West days when disaster capitalism grabbed up Caribbean land, struggling to survive the bombardments of hurricane seasons. Islands with weak infrastructures suffered more from this sort of poaching. The U.S. Virgin Islands always had long recoveries after big storms, which only got worse when Category 5 hurricanes came more frequently. We had to get smart real fast. Did you know we were one of the first to use common for hurricanes? I shake my head. No, I didn't. Throughout the night, I've noticed Stevens asking her smartphone how various communities are doing. The voice that answers back on the speaker isn't very different from Dr. Stevens's. St. Tomian English, though a bit more standard. Deep, but womanly. Savannah's fine. No damage in Bordeaux. Minimal flooding in Red Hook no damage in Smith Bay. On St. Thomas, like many other places ravaged by seasonal natural disasters, Common has been adapted to the challenge of disaster relief. I want to ask Stevens more about Common, but I'm distracted again. I think I can hear a woman singing in the wind and it makes my skin buzz with fear and memory. Stevens puts a hand on my shoulder and tells me that everything is up to code and that I am safe. Our Commonwealth strong. Big part of our budget goes to disaster preparedness, so we're ready when monsters come howling in their season. When she says this, it has the ring of an adult telling a child there's nothing under the bed. It is condescending, but also interesting, idiosyncratic. I write it down in my notebook.
On June 17, 2048, exactly two months before Hurricane Owen hit the island of St. Thomas, the World Cooperative Council announced that the Global Cooperative Commonwealth Movement had achieved many of its long-term goals ahead of 2050. At the same time, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a report that surprised no one. We are doing a great job with greenhouse emissions, but the Earth is still getting warmer. It shouldn't be surprising that the places most ravaged by climate change are the places where the cooperative commonwealth has been most realized. St. Thomas is one of those places. St. Thomas still feels like the one of my childhood, but edited somehow, like some god hand has painted over everything, remade the island in ways both subtle and infinite. The islanders are brusque like I remember, but quicker to smile, their working habits still relaxed, but markedly more efficient and egalitarian in their distribution of labor. In every community, there's a center stocked with resources residents can pick up without cost, as well as small clinics with doctors and nurses on staff. My guide, Dr. Stevens, is one of these doctors. She lives and works at her community center in Solberg. The arrangement, she tells me, is typical in the Virgin Islands. We know the community and they know us. Keeps things honest. I used to live in Solberg. The community I remember was always tight-knit. I could walk down the street and ask for a cup of sugar or take a couple of my neighbor's mangoes, but nothing like this. I try to reconcile this Solberg with the one from my past. I churn over my raw edges like a mollusk coating its pain with layers of nacre. In my notebook, the evidence of my private war is scrawled in desperate strokes. Heart aches for a past like this present, for all the precious things lost on the way. And in different ink, in reply, you weren't here, you have no right. And then finally, sharply underlined, just one word, a name I never speak aloud. This week on The Pitch, we're back to pitches. And this one's coming from my job. What Podcast AI does is it lets podcast producers become 10 times more productive. How much are you charging The Pitch? <laughs> we're charging $99. And Josh came in right before we doubled our prices. Mm-hmm. What's keeping something like a restream from just going like, yep, we do all this AI now stuff too? So there's a lot of these older companies that are tacking on AI, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the issue. They're tacking it on. You built this really quickly. What's to stop anybody else from doing this? What's what's the moat? How do you build a moat when you're building with AI? That's this week on The Pitch. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. The final puzzle piece of St. Thomas's transformation is common. The open source artificial intelligence based on the principle of accessible knowledge. The strong AI gets his name from the commons, a concept of public ownership of resources for the collective good. Common is governed by a federation of collective institutions all over the world devoted to the mission of AI as public resource. Anyone can add knowledge to common and there is a democratic process to building the hardware necessary to carry the AI. Common is decentralized and spread across all the devices that run its software. Tech cooperatives create vessels to hold the AI, 
from literal black boxes to giant robots, but most people use practical vessels like smartphones and watches. St. Thomas has a home share and rideshare program managed through Common, but they also update their stock of hurricane relief resources through the AI. Way back when, we used to talk about all that we lost after a hurricane. Dr. Stevens tells me more as we make the 20-minute trek to Theodore Bischoff Drive. But now we talk about what we have and what we can give to each other. When we arrive at Theodore Bischoff Drive, two dozen people are already working on our stretch of road, clearing debris. We join in, and Dr. Stevens doesn't waste any time before chatting up everyone. Stevens points to me. She came down for the hurricane season. What? You get a death wish or something? Journalists do it all the time. Getting early before devastation makes it difficult. To be there when relief efforts begin. Good. The man throws a pile of branches down the soft shoulder. I like that you helping. Let us go further down here. She used to live on rock. A local girl. I tense up and wait. The man looks right at me. Oh, when you leave? After Irma. I was a kid. He looks at me in a way that isn't cruel or kind. You got out early then. Good for you. For the next hour, I'm nervous. But the man's demeanor doesn't change, so I get over myself. I continue moving debris off the road. By noon, we're just about to go back to the Solberg Center for food. Then Stevens's phone starts ringing again. Common gives an address on one of the unnamed roads of Upper Solberg. One more stop, just up the way. I watch her, knowing how relative of a statement that is, but when she starts walking, I follow. As we walk, I ask Stevens about other uses for Common. She tells me that residents of the Virgin Islands value Common so much in times of crisis that some VI residents have given Common permission to watch them 24-7. When Stevens tells me this, my jaw drops. Stevens laughs in her characteristic way, whooping loudly and slapping me on the back. <laughs> you should see your face. I know maybe like two people that does that all year. Everyone else does it during the storms. Common was created to get away from the fears of surveillance by propriety AIs, but even Common has been the subject of heated debates. As Common gains complexity, people worry about what it knows and what it could do with that knowledge. Common can be accessed through its platform online. On the platform's front end, users can see the questions Common has been asking, its level of certainty about their answers, and categorize lists of all its confirmed knowledge. People can make suggestions to Common on the platform, add bits of nuance that Common can then go on to confirm through its own inquiries. Common is thorough, not committing anything to true knowledge until it has confirmed it hundreds or thousands of times. And even then, it is constantly challenging its knowledge, poking at what it thinks it knows. This is such a massive and slow process that most people don't bother tracking it. They just add their thoughts and ask Common the questions later to see what it's learned. On the back end of the platform lies a mind-boggling amount of code. Anyone can look at this code, but only democratically elected masters can make alterations. In the early days, they may have adjusted the code once or twice a year when they identified problems, but even the highly specialized masters have stopped tinkering. We have no idea what's in there anymore. We just accept the code like we all accept gravity. Common is singular and plural. 
a super-consciousness and a cooperative of individuated minds. Each individual common is different, with its own share of private and public information. It never shares private data with people, but it does remember if it gets permission. Private data helps tailor its actions to specific users, but it may help common acquire knowledge we can't even imagine yet. Video is tricky, since it grants Common the permission to remember anything in the frame. Privacy advocates who believe Common is self-aware think all access video feeds are dangerous. I tell Dr. Stevens this, and she stares at me like I grew another head. What is she going to do? Plan an uprising with knowledge of the contents of my living room? I don't know what to say, so I say nothing. I just note the pronoun. I could give you three cases of common saving someone's life because she sees something happen. Video is good data. Researchers use it all the time. In labs. That's dumb. Real life data is more useful. I ask her if common was watching us last night. She shakes her head. We don't do that with guests. It's rude. We turn down a small thin road and we're there. We bang on the door and yell out. The whole scene gives me a sense of deja vu right up to when we have to jimmy the door open. We find an old man sprawled out on the couch in pajama pants and a white t-shirt. He doesn't look like he's sleeping. Stevens makes a sucking sound with her teeth. I ask for the man's identity, and she gives me a nickname. Been in the community a while. Move over from out of country. Anna's retreat, I think. Shit. She looks at me. You okay? I swallow hard and close my eyes, nodding. Common? Back here. This Common has a different voice from the one on her phone. Stevens walks through the house to a back room. I follow behind her, my heart racing. I brace myself for another body, but we enter an empty bedroom with a blown-out window. The window shutter gone. Must have been ripped off by the storm. It happens. I couldn't hear where he went. The wind was blowing all night. He didn't come back for me, so I thought something was wrong. Common is at the end of the bookshelf near the door, nestled against a stack of books. The books on the bottom shelf are likely damaged beyond repair, but Common is a few shelves up, safe and dry. This Common is a pretty standard model, a black box. Stevens makes her way back across the room and picks Common up, and we go back to the living room. I try not to look at the body as Stevens inspects. She makes soft noises to herself before saying, in a way that feels, too matter-of-fact, the cause of death. Heart attack. I should have called you sooner. Common is sitting on the table next to me, so when it talks, I jump. Why you didn't? Sometimes he sleeps late. Not your fault, then. I recommended he stay with Tanya next door. She offered. What'd he say? He refused. Not your fault, either. As all this happens, I'm breathing through my mouth. I think I can smell something. And whatever it is, disturbs me. I should have insisted. Stop that. I'm so turned into myself. I miss what Steven says next, and before I catch on, she's out the door. I turn just in time to see it close. Bewilderment passes over me, and then anger at being left behind. Where did she go? To get help. I'm nervous and a bit frightened, so I ask Common a question I wouldn't have if I were in my right mind. Are you sad? He told me stories. He answered my questions. And now he's gone. I lost a close friend during a hurricane. I'm so sorry. Its voice is delicate, tentative, 
It was a long time ago, but I think about her a lot, especially in times like this. Is that why you left the island? I pause, gaping. I don't know how it knows this. Finally, I say yes. I never thought I'd come back here. Your work is a kindness, especially in times like these. I'm glad you came back. I glare at the box. Thank you. Have you considered staying? We could use you. I will think about it, but I'm lying. Common is quiet for a moment. I hope you do, Terry. This time I say nothing. It was a pleasure meeting you. You too. Can I remember this conversation? I consider the question for a long time. Then I shrug. Okay. Common stops speaking and lets the silence fill the room. And so I remember the dead body. I close my eyes and feel my way towards the door. I step out into bright sunlight and fresh air. Moments later, Stevens returns with a stretcher and four people. They go inside and I start walking back to the Solberg Center so I can give myself time to stop crying. As a kid, I would go over to Anna's house. She was a kind old lady. I'd go over and play with the dogs and have long conversations with Anna about her life. She wrote poems she would show to me. I read each one and even memorized some of them. I'd recite them for her as she sat in the living room, listening intently, smiling with encouragement. Sometimes Anna complained of neighbors coming into her home and stealing things. She had a bitter rivalry with one neighbor down the road, whom, Anna recounted, would glare at her when passing. That man, as Anna always referred to him, was one of the thieves. I now suspect this was an early symptom of the confusion that grew in her over time. But Anna lived alone, and I still believe she might have been harassed, partly because I believe almost everything Anna told me. Something in me cannot part with her version of events. My father worked all the time, so he didn't have a relationship with Anna, but he didn't seem to mind me going over to her house. When we were preparing for Irma's arrival, I casually suggested that Anna should come over and stay with us. I don't remember my father responding, and I didn't ask again. I was 12 and considered myself a little adult, but that night when Irma came, I hid in my closet and listened to Irma scream and batter the door. We were lucky. There was some flooding, my father's car had been damaged, and Irma had taken our porch rail as a token, but we were safe. I immediately went to check on Anna. I knocked on the windows, I jumped over the little gate to get onto her porch, I knocked on the door and called out. Dogs were barking, but no Anna. I was terrified. So I knocked on all the doors up and down the street. That man came and forced the door open with a crowbar, splintering the wood. The dogs rushed outside, wet and shaken. No Anna. Sometime later, I found her in the bushes. She had been struck with something in the back of her head. Some flying debris. She must have been confused. It was you, I thought. I learned later that dementia explained a lot of her behavior, so I eventually put that conspiracy away. But I still question myself, and worse, I question what I could have done. I think I should have insisted. But back then, it wasn't as common to invite neighbors into your home to wait out hurricanes. 
I didn't know what would happen. When I walk into the center, tall man is sitting on the couch. I go. I don't mention the body. Instead, I tell him that I'm thinking about coming home. It is an evasion and the truth. Then come on. We could use you. Only then do I realize Common did not answer my question about feeling sad. I do not know if Common is truly capable of sadness. But now I see the evasion for what it is. Some would say that it is uniquely human to withhold feelings, to keep in, to protect one's tender places. Oftentimes, we use other truths to misdirect. He told me stories instead of, I'm sad. I didn't know what would happen instead of, my heart is broken and always will be. We hide most of ourselves inside the privacy of our minds. Common hides too inside a web of artificial neural networks and streams of near-infinite code. The method is somewhat different, but the result is the same, a black box. I shouldn't be trusted with an answer to this conundrum. I am compromised by my own contradictions. But my instincts tell me to let some things remain unknown, let some heartbreaks linger, as long as they're useful, as long as when the threats come howling, they help us meet them. The future is filled with monster storms just waiting for their names. We won't come out unharmed, but there will be a time before and a time after. This audio story is part of Better Worlds, a series of 10 original science fiction stories, five audio adaptations, and five animated videos about hope. You can find the rest at TheVerge.com. Monsters Come Howling in Their Season was written by Cadwell Turnbull and edited by Laura Hudson and Andrew Liptak. The story was adapted for audio by Gautam Shrikishan and Zachary Mack. Voice acting by Tanika Gibson, Danielle Reynolds, Christopher Grant, and T.C. Sadek. Original music and sound design by Gautam Shrikishan. Art Direction by William Joel. Thanks for listening to Better Worlds. 